Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is Season 2 of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. This week, we're talking again to Alison Pike. Sorry, that ended up sounding really judgy. I don't know if I really like that. Alison <laughs> <laughs> Pike is a professor of child and family psychology in the School of Psychology at the University of Sussex. I've been studying and been fascinated by family relationships and especially siblings for the last 25 years. Good grief, that's a quarter of a very long lifetime. <laughs> I first saw Alison on the excellent TV series, The Secret Life of Siblings. Her academic research focuses on family relationships, especially siblings, and she also looks at the differential experiences of children within the same family, something I'm also really interested in. In this episode, we're talking about roles in the family. It's something I ask everybody who comes on relatively about what they think their role is and what their sibling might say their role is. Alison is fascinating on this subject about how your role in the family or your label is one way of differentiating yourself from your siblings, which of course happens. We're all different. Listen right to the end though to find out why we are so different to each other and why, in fact, the parental influence, despite the fact that Alison was worried about being a little bit judgy earlier on in the episode, spoiler, I don't think she was, may have less to do with how your children and their siblings turn out than you think. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I think we all do have an idea about what our own role within our families is. Um, and I'll use myself as an example. So people who meet me in my everyday life, I'm the deputy head of school for psychology. I'm quite a force to be reckoned with. I'm quite dominant and assertive in the workplace. And yet... When I'm around my family of origin, I'm the baby of the family. I'm very quiet. I don't take the lead in conversations. I avoid conflict like the plague. And so how does this happen? It's it's actually very, very common. One thing that this means is that although... We can see and we all tell stories, especially um, in relation to to birth order as well as, as, as the different roles we might play in a family. We can all see that play out in our own families and it and it feels as though these roles have a big influence um, on our lives, but they're very uh, difficult to detect outside the family setting. Okay. So, so if you get to know if you get to know a a group of people, and then I don't know after after spending a day in some kind of team building or or um, other type of day where you're meant to be getting to know one another, if you then ask people to guess 
the birth order of the participants, we're absolutely hopeless. So it actually doesn't play out all that much in our day-to-day adult lives, but where those roles really do still retain importance is within that family of origin, within those family dynamics. So in one way, yes, the roles are, are, are really important and they're an, an important part of all of our autobiographies. But on the other hand, they don't play a huge role in our, in our adult lives more generally. And that must be why it's so annoying when your partner, you go to your partner's home with your partner's siblings <laughs> and the person you think you know, who's like a fully functioning yes. adult, then morphs. <laughs> into this like petulant or like slightly hopeless baby character or something and you just think what is going on um yes absolutely yeah one of the things I've noticed on the podcast is that the roles um if there's only two siblings obviously Mm. they tend to be slightly more crystallized because there's this kind of definition in opposition thing going on because once you've had the first child if you only go on to have one more you've kind of given Mm -hmm. some labels to the first so they're quiet so the other one is either quieter or loud do you see what I mean there's no there's no flexibility with two kids and it seems quite trapping to me yes I think it can be and it's just it's just a natural um human instinct to differentiate and so we do see that with um you know even parents of identical twins I've heard parents describe one child as as hyperactive and the other child as really chilled and for me as an outsider I can look in and say actually they're they're both really highly active but because there's that small difference that gets magnified by a parent which makes parents you know not not the greatest reporters about their own children's behaviors and temperaments because the temptation to sort of artificially contrast your children as so the small differences kind of get um, get exaggerated, mm. whereas you know if a teacher is looking at at the child, they're going to have a more kind of objective view. Mm. I suppose they've got thirty five potentially other children, so yes. it's just all very much more subtle. And has there been research done on? I mean, I've read little bits about the golden child syndrome has there been research done on this sort of labeling and the effect it can have on the children or or the reasons for it psychologically Mm. there has been some some research that's more more clinically oriented um, and more kind of qualitative in nature so kind of taking case studies Mm. to see what kind of effect labeling can have but the other thing is that that we know from more broad psychological research how powerful labels can be and so it, it makes perfect sense that parents however they may label their offspring that that can turn into a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy I, I hate parent blaming, but <laughs> another another mistake I would say that that's really uh, easy to fall into is that as parents we might you know when we have infants and they're 
you know, three or four weeks old, we go ahead and talk about them as because we know that at that age they can't understand us. But it's really, really easy then to carry on talking about them in front of them. And they do begin to understand us. And at extremely young ages, they certainly understand tone of voice. They can understand body language. And so it, it really is quite important to, to kind of train yourself as a parent never to do it, as, as tempting as it is. Mm. And what about in your own research or the research of the students that you teach at Sussex? Have you done any work into the kind of labelling and the roles in the family or um, is it just something you've observed when you've been doing other work? I'm what's called like a quantitative sort of empirical psychologist. So my academic work has tended to be focused on kind of measurable things. So, you know, using numerical scales and whatnot. However, as I've gotten into my middle age, I'm more and more convinced that just relying on the numbers can disguise a lot of the rich meaning. And I pay more and more attention to, you know, as, as well as, as well as kind of formulaic interview questions or questionnaire data or doing coding of parent-child interactions, I've become more and more interested in what parents have to say to just much more open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where you do hear things like, oh, well, he, you know, he's, he, he, he's my easy child. Um, or I had no idea how difficult infancy could be until I had my second child. If I'd had him first, I think I would have only had one. And people say might say that in a really jokey way and and they're full of warmth and love towards their children, but but those messages may or may not uh, subtly or not not so subtly also get get conveyed to children. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that ended up sounding really judgy. I don't know if I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. You know, we. Um, I always think it's interesting that with your own children, sometimes they'll come up with a memory um, mm. from an astonishingly long time ago and when they were very young. So actually, it's not a bad reminder to to be told that children yeah. can start to understand the things that are going into their ears <laughs> from a young age. Yeah. I don't think that makes you sound judgy. I think it's just a good reminder because, <laughs> you know, labels can be, it can sort of be a sense of belonging if a nickname goes along with the label, for example. Mm. That can be quite endearing. But I think if you're already described as the clumsy one by age two or yes. three, it's quite hard n- you can it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy you can sort of mm. appear more clumsy because you're being called clumsy and then you start to think of yourself as you know it, it can be quite a sort of that's why I use the word trapping quite a sort of yes trapping thing to do as well yeah yeah it definitely can and I'm, I'm thinking about my my eldest sister who did who who did a lot of caretaking when we were growing up and our nickname for her was Mother Jane, which she did not like. Not surprised. Um, 
Yeah, I know. It's 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 it, it wasn't kind, and it was in a sense our frustration with her being, you know, quote unquote bossy. But it also pigeonholed her, and we're still working to this day on on the rest of us not relying on her to be the one who makes sure that that our mother's affairs are in order, that the care home gets paid on time. We still definitely rely on her to to play the role of a mother figure, and there's absolutely no reason why she should still be doing that. That's really interesting because you were saying outside the role of the family, it'd be hard to pin down what someone's role inside the family is. But actually, when you're dealing with family, those things come out. And we have had on this podcast people saying, you know, um, it's usually the women, the female children who end up doing the caring responsibilities or, you know, it. I, I will always be like this when we're dealing with the parents. I'll always be the organiser of the 80th, 90th birthdays because I'm the only mm-hmm. girl, that sort of thing. Whereas in the wider world, they might be terrible at organising even a night out. Um, yes. But it's put upon them. And I think there is a gender issue with some of that. Not in your case, perhaps, because there's more than one girl, but I think there can be. Oh, definitely. That's absolutely rife that um, not only do daughters end up carrying the burden far more than sons, even daughters-in-law are more likely to be doing that caring work than our sons. So, um, yeah, the, the, the gendered nature of caretaking is really, really stark. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Do you have any sort of anecdotes that you could tell me or examples where people have talked about roles in family, either their role or the roles they've given their kids that would kind of illustrate some of what we've been talking about? I I think one of the really um, classic roles, and I I think it's perhaps not quite as um, common today because I think there's, there's a recognition of the sexism involved as, as much as anything else. But um, there is there there can still be an idea if there are two girls, for example, there can still be an idea of the smart one versus the pretty one. Um, or with boys, there can be the clever one versus the sporty one. You do still hear parents talking in that way and it really does stifle both. For example, I can think of a handful of very successful academics who still feel intellectually inferior because in their families of origin, their brother or sister was considered to be the clever one. 
Um, and it's a, so th- those vestiges really still um, still play on people's minds right right the way through life. I was certainly one, one of the kids where I wasn't pretty, but I was really smart, and I still think of myself uh, in that way. And I that that's not particularly helpful. No, um, and I wonder then. Does, um... I didn't think you were sounding judgy earlier, but I wonder then what advice when the temptation to label your children or give them roles kind of pops mm. up, what would be a helpful way of circumventing that? You know, in the way we're taught now not to say to little girls, oh, you look so pretty. Oh, you look, yes. oh, your dress is fabulous. And But instead, I try hard to say, hey, those shoes look great for running in. I've, I actually try and say those things now to small yes. girls. I wonder if there's a similar sort of mind exercise that we could do with our own children I love the example that that you've just given and I actually have a have a friend who also turns that on its head in a different way she said that when she sees little boys she makes an effort to comment on their appearance not to be you know particularly shallow but just Ooh, I really like that hat. Where did you get that? Okay. Um, again, not being afraid to point out appearance-related things with boys because there are a lot of boys who are really passionate about the way that they dress. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my sons, by the age of about two and a half, when I would pull out clothes, would say, not match, not match, and go to the drawer and, and find something else. And he's absolutely delighted when someone points out, oh, don't you look smart in that shirt today? Something mm-hmm. like that. For something like that, it's not to be avoided altogether, but just to try and be gender neutral about it, maybe. Sorry, that was a huge tangent. Um... (laughs) I just wondered, I had a a hairdresser (laughs) once and I said, she was talking about her son and I said, oh, what's he like? And she said, well, I'll tell you what I tell everybody. If he gets to 21 and he's not addicted to anything and he hasn't killed anyone, I'll tell you then. (laughs) (laughs) And it it was kind of extreme, but but I was like, well... That's really nice in a way because you're allowing him to make really a lot of mistakes up until your barrier mistakes. And also yes. you're you're not saying what he's like at all because actually you don't know. <laughs> you don't yep. he's not a fully formed person yet. Um Yes. Yeah, that that's that's so true. I really like the metaphor of like um as parents we're not sculptors, we're we're gardeners. And um children are they, they come into the world with their own characteristics, their own propensities, and it's our job as parents to foster them in their individuality. But we're not all powerful, um, and who would want to be? I mean, I think that's that's the delight of of being a parent is to watch your children come into their own. Mm-hmm. And I think just avoiding labeling the person and instead remarking on specific behaviors or or specific accomplishments or whatever is the safer way to go because if someone says to you oh gosh you ran such a great race in sports day today that's a very different message than wow you're so sporty you know the the one is labeling you as as a type of person you're a sporty person and the other one is sort of congratulating you on 
a particular thing that you did, which is then kind of more inclusive that mm. that you can do lots of different things. Yeah, because it can be awful as well, can't it? I mean, I, I think um, if you think your parents are pleased by the fact that you are one way or the other way, then you that can be a terrible pressure to carry on being like that all the time, you know, rather than just being allowed to have a good day and a bad day and really love playing the recorder for a year and then really going off it. That's fine too, <laughs> I sort of think. Yeah, and I yeah. wanted just finally to finish, you um, you got interested in the way that siblings grow up as like true individuals because of the different environmental factors that might influence, you know, the circumstances in which they grow up. Can those environmental factors sometimes, they obviously shape a little bit the the way that the child develops that might then lead to them getting a label for being like a warrior or a you know mm. a sort of loud and shouty child because actually they went to a school where they had to be the loud and shouty child or something i suppose the external environment yeah. must bear on it too yeah yeah we have we have a very um jargony term for it within nature nurture studies and so we take the environment and we divide it into two types or two functions so there's there's something called the shared environment and that's all of the environmental influences which lead to siblings being similar to one another so things like whether or not parents stay married or divorce what kind of um, socioeconomic circumstances children grow up in, what kind of, you know, personality and, and, and mental health issues that parents might have. All of those things are going to be shared by brothers and sisters in a family and can lead to similar outcomes for them. And the surprise, I think, for, from this line of research has been that the other type of environment, which we call non-shared environment, works to make siblings in a family turn out differently to one another. So that can be anything from parental favoritism or parental kind of labeling, say, of, of your traits, but it can also be interactions with peers or, you know, many of us can, can remember one or two teachers um, growing up that it made a real difference uh, in our lives. And, th- and that can be unique to each individual member of a family and lead to brothers and sisters turning out quite differently to one another. Academically, the, the, the surprise from the research has been that those unique influences, that, that non-shared environmental piece of the environment is far more powerful than the shared environment. Oh. So, yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's surprising and, and it takes a little bit of thought. One example, I think, it can illustrate it well. If you have a family and mum and dad get divorced, that divorce is shared by the brothers and sisters in that family However, their subjective experience of that divorce can be really, really different. Mm. So one child may spend quite a bit of time at home, might, might have a particularly close relationship with mum, and through, through the divorce, 
that child may kind of get, get drawn into that conflict, may become a confidant for one or more of the parents. And it, so that might have a really big impact on that particular child's life. Whereas a brother or sister may be really involved in, in football and spend a lot of time outside the house and not have nearly as much exposure to what's going on. And so the divorce may, may not have the, the same impact on that other child. Um, and even things like, like sibling caretaking. If you're an eldest sibling and you're expected to do a lot of, of looking after of your younger brothers and sisters, then your experience of family life is very, very different to that of the youngest child who's who's getting that caretaking. That is so interesting. That sort of takes some of the uh, pressure off the parents as well. <laughs> well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you to Professor Alison Pike and thank you too for listening. If you're on half term, then have a lovely one. We're back next week talking to the netballing legends, Sasha and Kadeen Corbin. If you know, then you know. Thank you too to Tanita Tickerham, who let us use this amazing song. Sound design is by Nick Carter at Mixonics and digital production by Charlotte Griffiths. Do head to relativelypodcast.com to catch up on episodes you may not have heard in Series 1 or Series 2, Only Child Dame Jenny Murray, TV presenter Kirsten O'Brien and her brother Tim O'Brien, all the MPs, perhaps Angela and Maria Eagle. That's all at relativelypodcast.com. If you want to follow us for good siblings, memes and other fun things, then do follow us on Twitter at relatively underscore pod. Stand by the fireside, there's a good tradition of love and hate. Stand by the fireside, another rain may fall. Your father's calling you, you still feel safe inside. Only your ma's too proud. Your brother's ignoring you, you still feel safe inside. Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.